Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning, family. Happy New Year. We're preaching through the book of Philippians. We've taken a long break from it for the celebration of Advent, so we're coming back to that today and diving back into the third chapter and kind of trying to get back up to speed through this sermon to, to where we are, where, where God has us in that chapter, so we can get back at it and understand it and appreciate it. Let's read the text together today. This is Philippians 3, 1 to 11. This is God's word. And it is eternally true. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I've heard from a number of you over the recent months that this is your favorite part of the Bible, your favorite chapter of the Bible, some of the most, your favorite or life verses come from this chapter. I see the attraction. I've come to appreciate this chapter a lot, but I want to admit to you, I found it really difficult to figure out, to, to know how to open it up and explain it to us and help us enter in and feel what Paul is saying, benefit from it. I guess some scriptures are like that. This is I think deceptively simple. It's, but Paul is, in, in a way of, in, by way of telling his own story of coming to faith and coming to rest in, by faith in Jesus Christ, is pulling together a lot of threads, theological threads, and uh, otherwise uh, in this story. And, and they're interwoven. They're not like linear. It's not like a math problem. It's like, uh, it's, it's complex and Organic was the one, one of the words one of the elders said of it. It's organic. The struggling to understand this text, we've talked about it a lot as pastors in our pastors' meetings, and we've had a lot of profitable discussions, been really helpful and edifying. And I think that struggle 
has helped me appreciate and has clarified foundational things about the gospel for me. It has been really, really good. And not changed my understanding, but it has really clarified and expanded my appreciation for what we have in Jesus Christ. And that, that's, I hope to pass on that to you over the next few weeks. And a few weeks from now, we hope to get to chapter 4 and conclude Philippians in time for Holy Week and then move on to other parts of God's Word after that. So one of the things I've come to see about this chapter is that central to it, one of the central ideas that everything else is kind of orbiting around Paul's thinking is the idea of righteousness. Righteousness is really central to this chapter. It's all about righteousness, where it comes from, how it's acquired, how you get a hold of it, what it produces in your life when you get it. And all of that against the backdrop of some counterfeit approaches to attaining righteousness or a right standing with God. Some some, uh, counterfeit methods which are dangerous and Paul wants to warn against them. Righteousness is man's most important possession, commodity. The most important thing to have. The most necessary thing to have. It's more important than food and water. You will die without sustenance, but you will burn in hell without righteousness. So it's the most important thing to make sure you've got, and make sure you've got authentically the real stuff and insufficient supply of it. If, if life will be difficult, even this life, you, know, you have hell to expect if you don't have righteousness in the next life, but even in this life you will have difficulty and struggles if you do not figure out and get resolution with this concept of righteousness. You will have unrest, unease in your conscience and in your life. It will burden you and trouble you and lead you down to dark places. I've experienced this personally in my life. When I was in my late teens and into my 20s, I had no peace with God. And I couldn't figure out how to get it. And it was really my conscience accusing me that I didn't measure up to God's standard. And my conscience was not wrong. But I didn't know what to do about it. Paul is writing as someone who has found the solution to his need and man's need for righteousness. He's found that solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to people, dear people to him in Philippi, a city at some distance from him, that have come to know that blessing, that peace with God, that that righteousness which results in peace with God, fellowship with him, through Paul's ministry in their life. He's writing to them. And he's writing to warn them and to defend them against Anybody, the snake oil salesmen, the spiritual snake oil salesmen of his day, the Judaizers, who were peddling a different method for how to achieve a right standing with God than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They had a counterfeit method, which was damnable and dangerous, which is why Paul warns against them in very strong language here in our passage. Verse 2, he says, he calls them dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. And really behind that word is the word The castrators. He's using really strong language to warn against these peddlers of a false gospel. 
And he uses those terms because he knows what's at stake. And what's at stake is joy. Joy. Joy is a very serious idea and a very serious thing that God is all about. Joy is in his presence, and he wants joy for his people. That's what Paul said. That's why Paul starts here and puts, he's about to delve into this topic of righteousness, and he starts by putting it in its context of what's at stake. In verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Joy comes from fellowship with God. And so, righteousness. How is righteousness important to that? Well, first of all, what is joy? What is joy? Joy, as we said back before Christmas, is a supernatural emotion that is far superior to just mere happiness in that it is not tied to circumstances. It's not dependent on circumstances. It doesn't go up and down with the bumps of life. Joy comes from the Lord. It is like this supernatural spiritual blessing from the Holy Spirit imparted by God in his people. And what it produces is this baseline of peace and security, contentment and hope that carries us through any difficulty of life. Doesn't that sound like a good gift to have? That's what God desires to bless his people with. And that joy comes by way of righteousness, because righteousness is what's required to enter into God's presence and have fellowship with him, whereas where joy exists, he is joy itself. He is, has an abundance of joy. It says in Psalm sixteen eleven, in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy in his presence. At your right hand are pleasures forever. The purpose of your existence is to tap into and experience and abide in the joy of the Lord, the joy that, that overflows from him. But you can't do that without meeting his righteous standard. That is just absolutely clear throughout scripture. God has a righteous standard that must be met in order to commune and fellowship with him and, and, and abide in his presence. Here's one example of this from Psalm 15. In Psalm 15, the psalmist asks, Lord, who may abide in your tent with you? And who may dwell on your holy hill? Who can do that? What are its, that man's qualifications? And the answer is given in that psalm, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness. And the psalm goes on to explain more and more what that righteousness consists of, the perfections that God requires of those who would dwell in his presence and receive of his joy. Righteousness is a prerequisite to communion and fellowship with God. We can't access the life of God or the joy that he has without it. So righteousness would be very important, wouldn't it? Very important thing. Our most important and necessary possession. Something we need to make sure we've got and make sure we've got authentically. In order to appreciate what Paul is saying about righteousness here, we need to first understand what righteousness is. What is this word righteousness? To be righteous is to meet or conform to God's standard of holy perfection. 
That is what it means to be righteous, to, to meet or conform to God's standard of holy perfection. Anybody here feeling the pressure to be perfect? That is a heavy burden. I know some of us are feeling it. I've spent a lot of my life feeling the pressure to be perfect. Perfect. Pastor Tim used to say all the time, you're a perfectionist. And I am. I feel the burden of being perfect. And it's a heavy, oppressive burden. Those of us who feel that way, feel pressure to be perfect and measure up, want to blame that on our environment, on other people, on, on our, our teachers, our pastors, our youth group leaders, our parents. And we can sinfully add to people's burdens, unrealistic expectations of perfection that we can put on each other, which are not helpful, not helpful. But that's not all that's going on in your heart and mind if you're, feeling, you're laboring under this feeling, this compulsion to be perfect and to measure up, constantly depressed and discouraged under that yoke. What is going on ultimately is your conscience is speaking to you about the perfections of God and your own lack of conformity to them. How you do not meet God's righteous standards. That's why your conscience is a gift from God to tell you that. That's what it's there for. And it's not wrong. Your conscience is not wrong. It's not lying to you. It's telling you the truth. You don't measure up to God's standard. God definitely has a standard of holy perfection that we are obligated to meet. And it's a standard that we don't meet and that we can't meet in ourselves. What is that standard that God has? Well, we tend to evaluate our conformity to God's perfection or his standard by how we measure up against one another. How am I doing? Well, let's see how Ben's doing today. Well, I don't know. I think I'm feeling pretty good about myself because what I see in Ben. That's how we tend to evaluate ourselves and process a lot of our spiritual life is through, you know, how am I doing against you in the race to God? There's nothing wrong about imitating godly people. Paul himself, in a few verses, is going to tell his friends in Philippi, imitate me. Imitate me. That's a... It's a good thing to imitate a godly person, but is that God's standard, Paul? Is that his standard of perfection and godliness, Paul? No, it's not. Concerning the godliest people of his day, the scribes and Pharisees, at least as everybody thought and understood it, if, if you said, think, guys, if Jesus said, think of the godliest people you can think of, they'd think of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is what Jesus said about them, or said to the crowd. He said, Unless your righteousness, people, exceeds and surpasses the righteousness of the godliest people, the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't ascend into God's hill and abide with him. 
you will not, unless you exceed even their righteousness. So everybody think about the godliest person that you know. Everybody got somebody in mind that you think of as godly and respects spiritually. Is that the standard that you are to attain? No. No. That is not God's standard. What is God's standard? It's not Mother Teresa. It's not your godly grandpa or grandma. It's not your dad or mom. It's not me, your pastor. It's not your youth group leaders. That is not God's standard. God's standard is himself. It is himself. He is the absolute standard and measure of righteousness. He is holiness personified, and he commands you and me to be holy like he is holy. He says at least seven times in the scriptures this phrase, be holy as I am holy. Be holy like me. And elsewhere, Jesus puts it this way. He says, you are to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. How holy and how perfect is the Lord? He is the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Perfect, perfect, perfect is the Lord. That comes from a vision that the prophet Isaiah had of God exalted on his throne high and lifted up in his glory, and the holy angels around him were shouting that out constantly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How did Isaiah feel like he measured up to that standard? Well, I mean, I'm doing better than Ben. Was that his response? No, all he could see was God and himself. And immediately, what were the words out of his mouth? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. What about you? How do you measure up to God's standard? Or has God given us a vision of himself and his holy character? One of the clearest places he's given it to us is in his law. His law is expression, not just of his idea of righteousness and obedience, but of his own righteousness. It's conveyed to us in a way that's helpful to us as as a standard and a measure for our lives by way of his law, a way of his law. How are you doing measuring up to God's law? You know, in Jesus' day, there were a bunch of people, in fact, most religious people thought that they were doing pretty well with respect to God's law. One of those people came to Jesus one day, famously, a rich young man, and he said to Jesus, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He's heard Jesus talking about eternal life, and he's wondering, what more do I need to do to inherit this? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. He lists them off. He says, you know that you're not supposed to murder You know, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know the commandments. And how did the man respond? Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. 
Isn't that an amazing response? That shows a man who thinks he's doing fairly well with regard to God's standard. I've kept it all, so what more is, do I need than that? And do any of us think that way? Some of us do, or at least I think we think of ourselves as maybe not too far from that achievement. You know, like, we're not, we're not like, uh, horribly off base. <laughs> Paul once thought like that man who came to Jesus. That's what he's confessing here in this passage. He's telling us in verses four to six, I used to think just like that man. In fact, I was probably doing better according to his scale than he was. I used to think that I was doing all right by the law of God. And then he says this in verse 6 of our passage. He says, as to the righteousness that is in the law, speaking of himself, as he used to think, I was found blameless. Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say that? He's confessing to us that that's how he used to think in his prior state of delusional pride. Back when he had a fleshly, superficial relationship to God's law. And how he was, in a, because, and which kept him from reading it and understanding it correctly. He was using the law in an unlawful or unauthorized manner or way. He would write later to Timothy, his protege, and he would say, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. What he is admitting to here in this passage is, I didn't use it lawfully when I was approaching it like that man who came to Jesus. How is God's law to be used? What is it good for? One of the most helpful things that Jesus did in his teaching ministry, his preaching, was to work to restore to the people of God a true spiritual understanding of the law of God, its proper use. He came to restore it to the people and give it back to them. He came to show how far it applies and how deeply it cuts. And he did this masterfully in a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Over and over again, Jesus does this with God's law. He didn't come to contradict or abolish the law. He came to restore it to its proper use. And here's one example of that. He says in Matthew 5, 21 to the people, you've heard, you've heard that the ancients, your forefathers were told, you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. You've heard that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. That what was the penalty for murder? Death. According to God's law. Jesus said, I'm telling you, if you are angry with your brother, you're as accountable as a murderer. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, Jesus is not correcting God. He is showing what God meant when he said, you shall not murder. 
he's showing that that applies all the way down into the secret places of the heart and the thoughts of your mind. To any hateful thing against another man, you're accountable for murder. And he does the same thing with another capital crime, adultery. It used to be a capital crime in God's law. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You've all heard that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus doing? He's saying how far and how deep the law applies. And he is showing that there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide from God's standard and your accountability to it. The law of God is not meant to make you feel righteous. That is not its purpose. It's given to expose sin. That's its first and primary use, is to expose sin. The law, according to Scripture's words, was given so that the transgressions would increase Multiply and be magnified. Put a spotlight on it. So that sin would be, quote, utterly sinful. To, quote, shut up all in disobedience. To make everybody accountable, make everybody see that they're guilty before God. That's the, this is Paul, the regenerated, saved Paul, explaining what the what he came to understand was the real purpose of the law when he came to faith in Christ. The law's ministry is first and foremost a ministry of condemnation. And that's a good and a necessary thing that we need because it's death to our pride. We got a lot of pride. We got a lot of self-righteousness. And it's horrible. And it's oppressive. It oppresses others and it oppresses us. <laughs> and we need something to show us the truth. And God gave us the law to convey his own righteousness and the standard that he has for you and me. We can never get to God by our pride. Pride is what got us into this mess and what separated us from God in the first place. Self-reliance and self-righteous pride is never going to get us back to him. We got to be brought into a state of humility by the law so that we can be a fit recipient for God's mercy and we can despair of ourselves and get over ourselves and look finally to God and his mercy in Jesus Christ. The law has never been meant by God to be used as a ladder 
that we climb to heaven. We turn it into like a tower of Babel, God's own law, something that we build in our own strength to climb back to God. And that's a horrible perversion and an unlawful use of God's holy law. It's meant, in Paul's lingo in Galatians, to be a schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, so that we would get over ourselves, despair of ourselves, and finally, in humility, come meekly to the saving work of Jesus Christ and receive it in faith. But in Paul's, day, in Paul's early days, in his unconverted state, he didn't use the law like that. He used it in this unlawful way as a means of proving himself and advancing himself in religion, and, and, and just as many other people around him were doing. Paul was like an a expert in it. He was just ahead of everybody else in this, in this bad theology. This was the great uh, doctrinal error of Paul's day. And Paul was like, excellent in this error, <laughs> ahead of everybody else. He tells us about that in verses 4 to 6, how he, how he was the most outspoken, most notable practitioner of this fleshly, superficial, unlawful approach to God's law. He tells us here how much he felt that he gained by this. And then suddenly what happened to Paul? We don't read about it here, but he's basically alluding to it in this passage. Something happened to Paul. You read about it in Acts chapter 9. He was on his way to a city, Damascus, to persecute disciples of Jesus and to put them in jail. And the Lord Jesus Christ suddenly appeared to him on the road. And in the blinding light of Christ's glory, Paul had his script flipped. He saw everything in a radically different way. He had his own Isaiah-like encounter with the holy, exalted Christ. He came face to face with God's righteous standard in the per, in his you know right there, in front of him, the standard himself. Have you had anything like Paul's experience? I don't mean in the flesh. That's not something we can count on experiencing. God doesn't do that very often. Extraordinary cases. But he has given us his law. And by the power of his spirit, at times we have, we realize the law speaks. And it slays us. And we have nowhere to go but Jesus. Nowhere to go but Jesus. Have you had that kind of encounter? Well, what did Paul realize there on the road as Christ appeared to him in Acts 9? Just like Isaiah experienced, Paul realized that he did not conform to God's holy standard and could not. In fact, everything that he thought was like an advantage to him or an accomplishment of his or law-keeping and, and excellence and perfection on his part was seen, shown immediately to be worthless. Worse than worthless. Loss. Like a detriment. Like on, on the income and profit and loss sheet, the, those numbers in parentheses or in red. Adding to his guilt because it was keeping him from faith in Jesus Christ, which is the true righteousness that God has supplied. And especially his zeal 
which he, he prided himself in as having more than other people. The zeal that drove him to Damascus to put Christians into prison. Jesus says to him in simple words, exposes that that zeal is definitely not to be taken pride in because that is a sign, of, it's actually an evidence of horrible treason and opposition to the Lord Jesus himself, to God himself. Have you come to see your sin this way? Come to see it in the, in, in the light of God and his holiness as an affront to his character, as treasonous against him, as horrible wickedness. Paul came to see that in an instant. That's not all he came to see, though. God didn't just immediately, quickly restore to him a proper relationship to the law. He restored to him, or brought him into a proper relationship to the lawgiver. Paul saw in humility that in humility he could lay aside his vain hopes and his sinful fleshly ambitions. He could put those aside. He could count them rubbish, dung, street trash. He could repent of his pride and he could come humbly to his Savior. And he refers to this work here, that he, this exchange that he makes in verse 8 under the terms of knowing Christ. That's what he traded all that stuff for. Uh, that's what he saw as the alternative to this method, hopeless method of trying to climb my way to heaven. I could know Christ. I could know him. That's gain. True gain is what he came to see. Paul came into a personal saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why anybody who would receive of the saving power and blessing of Christ's work must do. You must come to know that for yourself and receive it personally. Your mom and dad can't receive it for you. I can't receive it for you. I can tell you about it. Christ offers it and you must reach out and receive it in faith. And that's what Paul did. He came into a personal saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how he expresses this. He says, he refers to Jesus in verse 8 as my Lord. He is now my Lord. He owns Jesus personally as the one who owns him. He owns Jesus as his king, the one to which he now owes allegiance. And the Greek word that Paul uses that we translate knowledge here is not like this abstract theoretical intellectual thing only. It's not just like, oh, okay, I know some facts about Jesus now, and that saves me. Facts about Jesus don't save you. You've got to know them to know Jesus. But this word knowledge implies personal, relational, experiential knowledge. He entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship of knowledge, of knowing, but of experience and connection You know, the whole idea of a personal relationship with Jesus has, we said this before Christmas, has been corrupted in many ways 
in the church in our day. Men abused and misused. One of the great examples of this, or the horrible examples of this, is in this trend of what we call Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You know what I mean? Christian, if you've listened to Christian radio, a lot of a relationship and worship of God gets recast in terms of romantic lingo words. It's like it's a frame, the framework is romantic quite often. That's what Christian radio seems to think of quite often as a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. That is a horrible abuse of the biblical relation, what it means biblically to be in relationship to Jesus Christ. Now that image of, of husband, a groom and bride, of, of husband and wife, is, an, is used as an analogy in Scripture for the way God relates to his people corporately and often. It's the, way, it's, the, it's the analogy used by Scripture to explain Christ's love for his bride, the church. But you and I, as individuals, are never taught to think of ourselves as brides of Christ or in a romantic relationship with him. We're taught to think of ourselves in relationship to God through Christ as our Father. He brings us to the Father, sons to a Father. And we're taught to think of our relationship to Jesus as brothers, younger brothers of our elder brother and king, Jesus. That's how we're taught to relate in Scripture's words and instruction to Christ and to God. And there's lots of other ways that this has been abused in the church, this understanding of a personal relationship with Jesus. And we've come to see some of those and talk about them at times in our teaching here. And it would be very tempting for you and I, who see this be abused, to run over to this other way of existing, which is just like, uh, to stay so far away from it that we just enter into a kind of like a cerebral relationship to Jesus. Just facts about Jesus. Kind of like an intellectual relationship to Jesus. And that happens too. Scripture does not allow us to do that. We must not run over to that other ditch. There is a real and necessary personal saving relationship to Jesus Christ that we must come into to be saved. And Paul talks about it here and helps define it and give it its shape biblically. What does it mean? One of the pastors in our pastor's meeting asked, well, what does it mean to be in a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus? What does that mean? It's a good question. Have you ever asked? What, what does that actually mean? How does that relationship work? What does it consist of? Well, Paul tells us here what it means, what it looks like in practice. There's two parts to Paul's description of his personal relationship with Jesus that he gains and God saving him. And they are necessarily in, in what's the word? Insolubly linked. You can't, and can't, you should not and can't divide these two things. They go together of necessity. Two aspects of what it means to be in a relationship, a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Two. And he lays them out here. 
there's a temptation to try, you got to have them both together, but there's a temptation to want the first one without the second one. And there's a temptation on the part of some to have the second one without the first one, but you got to have them together. And um, there is a necessary order and priority in them. The first one must be the first one. It is the first one. And the second one is the second one. It flows from the first, okay? What are these parts? We, Paul lays them out for us in verses 9 and 10, respectively. We'll, re, we'll summarize them this way. In verse 9, he shows us that, first of all, to be in a relationship of, that's saving with Jesus Christ is to know him as your righteousness. To know him as your righteousness. And second of all, in verses 10 and following, he shows... He shows us that it, to be in a saving relationship with Jesus is to know his power at work within you, transforming your character and motivating your life. To know him as your righteousness, in verse 9, and in verse 10 and following, he shows that it's to know his power at work within you, transforming your character and motivating your life. We could say it this way, that to know Jesus Christ personally begins with knowing his righteousness vicariously. His, it's his, after all, not yours. But it's appropriated, it's, it's given, granted to you in some way, a way that we'll talk about more next week. It's, it's given to you and granted to you at, to be like your very own. And the result, that results in something. It results in a further knowing of God's, Christ's power practically in transforming and transforming your life and giving it direction. We're going to look at both of those things more fully next week. Today, I just want to dip our toes here briefly before communion in the first one. Having Christ as your righteousness, knowing him as your righteousness. Look at verse 9. Paul wanted to be, in his words, found in Jesus. It's what he says is the first part of knowing Jesus. He wants to be found in him. And this is what it looks like. Not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law. He gave that up. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Anybody feel the pressure to measure up to God's standard? You're right. Your conscience is speaking truth. And the law was given to drive that even more firmly home. But God is not in the business ultimately of condemning us or leaving us in condemnation. He condemns our pride and our self-righteousness so that we become humble and meek and ready to receive what he is ready to provide. His own perfection, his own standard of perfection has been met by his son in this world and his life of obedience. He never one time sinned. He didn't fail to do anything God required and he didn't do anything ever that God forbid. And why did he do that? For you. Because you could not. Because I could not. He did it for us. And in his death, he 
paid the price for our sin and offers us a way to be holy and accepted of the Father. Paul came to know this. He came to know the great exchange of the gospel. That Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him through faith. That we are united to him. And that when we go to the judgment throne of God, the, the, approach the bar, we have, we have Jesus there as our advocate. And he's saying to the Father, this guy's with me. He's with me. And don't look at him. Look at me, Father. Look upon him as you look at me. That's the foundation of a Christian. That is the base, the, that is the, that is step one of knowing Christ savingly. Is to trust that he has provided that for you and will forever provide it for you. That he will be your righteousness. And when you have to answer to God in the next life or even now in this one, in your conscience at night, you can go to God in Jesus Christ and hear him say, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, just like he said of Jesus, his son, because you are in him by faith. We'll have more to say about that next week and, that, and how that then results in powerful transformation in your life and a, and a certain direction that you're headed with a promised outcome of heaven. These are the two things that are necessary to understand yourself to be in a vital relationship that's personal with the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is your righteousness? Where is it? Aaron, where is your righteousness? Only Jesus. Anna, where is your righteousness? Phil, where is your righteousness? Where is your righteousness? Ben, where is your righteousness? Both Ben's. (laughs) only in Jesus it's got to be true if it's not true you're damned you can't meet the standard Jesus has and he offers us in the gospel the opportunity to be found in him. Is that a good deal? That's a good deal right there. You guilty sinner with no hope, God has made a way for you to be in fellowship with him and to experience the joy and peace of believing the joy that is abundant in his presence.
You can have peace with God, Frank, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful gift of salvation in your Son, Jesus, and for his righteousness, his obedience, which can be ours by faith. Father, make us to believe. Turn us from our own self-righteousness and empty conceits and false hopes. Humble us by your law and remind us that we have no other hope but Jesus and that there is abundant hope in him. I pray that you would work that even more fully in us, that hope in Christ today. And amen.